Please open your Bibles to Second Chronicles chapter 13, which we will study in full tonight, verses 1 to 22. Listen now to God's holy, inerrant, and life-giving word, the 13th chapter of Second Chronicles. In the 18th year of King Jeroboam, Abijah began to reign over Judah. He reigned for three years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Micaiah, the daughter of Uriel of Gibeah. Now there was war between Abijah and Jeroboam. Abijah went out to battle, having an army of valiant men of war, 400,000 chosen men. And Jeroboam drew up his line of battle against him with 800,000 chosen mighty warriors. And then Abijah stood up on Mount Zemariam, that is in the hill country of Ephraim, and said, Hear me, O Jeroboam, and all Israel. Ought you not to know that the Lord God of Israel gave the kingship over Israel forever to David and his sons by a covenant of salt? Yet Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, a servant of Solomon, the son of David, rose up and rebelled against his Lord, and certain worthless scoundrels gathered around him and defied Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, when Rehoboam was young and irresolute and could not withstand them. And now you think to withstand the kingdom of the Lord in the hands of the sons of David, because you are a great multitude and have with you the golden calves that Jeroboam made you for gods. Have you not driven out the priests of the Lord, the sons of Aaron and the Levites, and made priests for yourselves like the peoples of the other lands? Whoever comes for ordination with a young bull or seven rams becomes a priest of what are no gods. But as for us, the Lord is our God, and we have not forsaken him. We have priests ministering to the Lord who are the sons of Aaron and Levites for their service. They offer to the Lord every morning and every evening burnt offerings and incense of sweet spices. They set out the showbread on the table of pure gold and care for the golden lampstand that its lamps may burn every evening. For we keep the charge of the Lord our God, but you have forsaken him. Behold, God is with us at our head and his priests with their battle trumpets to sound the call to battle against you. O sons of Israel, do not fight against the Lord, the God of your fathers, for you cannot succeed. Jeroboam had sent an ambush around to come up upon them from behind. Thus his troops were in front of Judah and the ambush was behind them. And when Judah looked, behold, the battle was in front of and behind them, and they cried to the Lord, and the priests blew their trumpets. Then the men of Judah raised the battle shout, and when the men of Judah shouted, God defeated Jeroboam and all Israel before Abijah and Judah. The men of Israel fled before Judah, and God gave them into their hand. Abijah and his people struck them down with great force, so There fell slain of Israel 500,000 chosen men. Thus the men of Israel were subdued at that time, and the men of Judah prevailed, because they relied on the Lord, the God of their fathers. And Abijah pursued Jeroboam and took cities from him, Bethel with its villages, and Jeshana with its villages, and Ephron with its villages. Jeroboam did not recover his power in the days of Abijah, and the Lord struck him down. And he died. But Abijah grew mighty, and he took 14 wives and had 22 sons and 16 daughters. The rest of the acts of Abijah, his ways and his sayings, are written in the story of the prophet Iddo. 
The grass withers, the flowers fall, and the word of our God abides forever. Amen. Father, we thank you for these lessons from our own history as a covenant people, that when we rely upon you, we are saved, and that you have strength against all our enemies. Help us to learn the lessons here, particularly when it comes to your son, that we would kneel before him and make him our king, that we would be saved by his grace. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, imagine yourself moving to a new city. You've probably had the experience and you're searching for a church. And maybe you don't really understand what the options are. And so there's all these churches claiming to be Christian. The choices are bewildering. There's the Roman Catholics. There's the Eastern Orthodox. There's the, among Protestants, there's Baptists, Presbyterians, Episcopalians, all kinds of brands of non-denominationalism. How do we know which of them is right? And even within the good categories, How do we discern between a true and a false church? Well, the Protestant reformers thought deeply about this matter because they had been described as having abandoned the true church, which Roman Catholicism said was all that was gathered under the Pope. But was that true, the reformers asked, when they studied God's word? And reflecting on scripture, they instead developed three marks of the true church on the basis of which they justified their departure from the false church of Rome. Now, the first and chief mark of the true church, they noted, is the faithful preaching and hearing of God's word so that Christ is trusted as Lord and Savior. A true church is a gathering of the flock of Jesus, and they hear his voice. His voice calls forth in the scriptures. They know them. John Calvin particularly emphasized not only the preaching, but the receiving of the the word. That's the flock of the Lord. They trust his atoning death for their salvation. Now, secondly, they noted a true Christian church rightly administers the sacraments. Baptism and the Lord's Supper are not corrupted so as to lose their connection to Christ or as so often as the clates to take the place of Christ virtually in salvation. The sacraments are to point to Christ and to offer the seal of his saving work. John Calvin wrote, whenever we see the word of God purely preached and heard and the sacraments administered according to Christ's institution, There is not to be doubted a church of God that exists. Later reformers added a third mark of church discipline, noting that a true church will rightly identify the boundary between the church and the world that is necessary. Now, Robert Godfrey notes that these three marks, the faithful preaching and hearing of the word, the right administration of the sacraments, and church discipline are not all that a good church does or that a true church does. But the reformers focused on the marks because they make the true church recognizable. That's what the mark means. The marks are important because they display the faithfulness of the church. Well, in the days after the foolish reign of King Rehoboam of Judah, the distinction between the true church versus the false church, then between true Israel and false Israel, was of the greatest importance. We learned in chapter 12 that after the division of the kingdom, the godly Levites left the northern kingdom. They were being persecuted and replaced unbiblically, and they came down to serve under the house of David in Jerusalem. That's actually a major moment in redemptive history. 
as God's covenant history transitions from Israel to Judah and the godly go to Judah where the covenant promises lay. And with them came those who had set their hearts to seek the Lord God of Israel, Second Chronicles eleven sixteen. But here's the question. Why was that the right decision? Should they have stayed in the north despite its base idolatry and their persecution? Uh, should they have sought to do, you know, what little good? This is the way people reason they wrestle with this. Should they have stayed and done what they could despite the idolatry and persecution? Well, the answer is given in chapter 13 of Second Chronicles, which makes clear the difference between true Israel and false Israel that is, between the kingdom that knew the Lord and walked in his blessing versus the kingdom that had forsaken the Lord for the idols of the world and lay under his curse. Well, the northern kingdom under Jeroboam was called Israel, and it was composed of people who ethnically, by birth, were Israelites. But it had ceased to be true Israel when it renounced the Lord in pursuit of idols. And like Jeroboam's realm, the false church today becomes an institution of the world when it abandons God's word and it takes on the world's character, which includes enmity towards God and his true people. But the true church, so clearly depicted here in the words and actions of Judas king Abijah, though weak in worldly might, is delivered by the Lord by supernatural means. The chronicler explains the reason for the victory Abijah and Judah received in verse 18. The men of Judah prevailed because they relied on the Lord, the God of their fathers. Likewise, the true church always will prevail, though beset with many threats and dangers, because in the words of Martin Luther's hymn, as we celebrate Reformation Sunday this week, we will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. Well, let's look at this passage. The situation described in chapter 13 is one where the relationship, shall we say, between the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah had deteriorated over a number of years. Jeroboam had now reigned in the north for 18 years before Rehoboam died. His son Abijah came to the throne. And while Abijah only reigned for three years, and perhaps considerably less than that, there were parts of three years that he reigned, his kingship involved at least this dramatic incident where he gained victory by trusting the Lord. And the chronicler reports this battle as a way of encouraging his own generations to follow the example of Abijah in relying on the Lord against great odds. This theme of having victory because they relied on the Lord despite the odds is going to govern not only this chapter, but many of the chapters that are to come. Well, the Bible seems to give a mixed report about Abijah, and I refer to 1 Kings 15, verse 3, that says that he walked in all the sins that his father did before him, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father. That's a classically negative assessment. He's actually called Abijam there, but it's the same person. That's a very starkly negative assessment of Abijah in the book of Kings. So we're a little surprised when the chronicler recounts this great act of faith by the very same person. How do we explain that? Well, there's two, I think, possible explanations. One is, though, he was a generally ungodly man. He had this one occasion where he got his act together. 
And he was blessed because he trusted the Lord. The message would be, even though you may not have your act together, turn to the Lord and, and he, you can be blessed through repentance and faith. I'm actually more inclined to follow the lead of a second explanation given by Cyril Barber, who argues that the writer of Kings is referring to Abijah's conduct when under the influence of his father, King Rehoboam. And indeed, I think there is in Chronicles the evidence for a much better assessment of him himself, particularly when he's on his own. For instance, you'll note this in the speech and actions of this chapter, they reveal a godly spirit and a firm resolve of faith. We really wouldn't ascribe this to someone who really is, un, is ungodly, who's not a believer. So that impression does not really fit here. This would tell us that whatever, you know, accommodations he foolishly made while his father was king, these are the works of a believer. Now, second, we have to ask where he gained his accurate knowledge of the Bible if he was such a, a heathen, as it were, though king of Judah. He's going to recount here very accurate, accurately the arrangements of God's covenant with David. He's going to make a biblical assessment of the priests and their service. Now, it's interesting that he has that. Now, maybe one of the godly Levites who'd come down from the north had witnessed to him and taught him the scriptures. I think that's probably likely. Now, thirdly, his son Asa, who we'll meet in the next chapter, is a genuine hero of the faith. Imperfect, but a genuine hero of Chronicles. One of the fun things of preaching and studying Chronicles is people haven't heard about Asa and Jehoshaphat and Hezekiah. And, and, and the first in that troop of godly heroes is Asa. He's the son of Abijah. Doesn't prove that he was a believer, but... It's a good sign. Well, without a doubt, the record of Second Chronicles 13 gives us hope that Abijah had repented of his earlier sins under the leadership of his father, that he turned in faith to the Lord when he became king. And if so, he reveals a feature of the true church. It's a place where sinners are welcome to learn about the grace of God and his son, Jesus Christ, and where many repent so as to inherit eternal life and to do much better with the years they have left. Well, on this occasion, open war had broken out between Israel and Judah. This is in the border region between the two nations, just across the border in Ephraim, really not that far from Jerusalem, maybe 20 miles. And Abijah arrived with a strong veteran force. Verse 3, he went to battle having an army of valiant men, men of war, 400,000 chosen men. But Jeroboam, ruling over a much more numerous people, he came with an army twice that size, 800,000 chosen mighty warriors, verse 3. Now, people will say that those numbers are too big. We have no basis to say that. It is possible, however, to argue that these words for thousands, the Hebrew word for thousand also means regiment. It could be he went with 400 units. And anybody who served in the army knows that no unit's actually full strength at any time. Uh, the numbers could go down, uh, and that could be one way of taking the Bible. But these are large numbers in any case. The bottom line is that Jeroboam's got twice the large army that Abijah had. Now, now we're not told how this happened or how it unfolded. Again, I would argue that the evidence here suggests that the aggressor is Jeroboam probably seeking to unite the tribes and to have a united front against Egypt. Jeroboam, we learn, had planned an ambush for Abijah, whereas what we'll see of Abijah is that he is devoting himself to pursuing peace between the warring sides. It seems much more likely that Jeroboam is the aggressor. 
Well, as the two forces prepared to clash, verse 4 says, Abijah stood up on Mount Zemariam, that is in the hill country of Ephraim, and he began speaking aloud so that the enemy armies could hear, uh, soldiers could hear him. Now, he was seeking to avert bloodshed by appealing to them, first of all, to recognize the illegitimacy of their cause. Their problem wasn't him, it was the Lord, because they were not a true church. They were not true Israel. And his first appeal makes the argument based upon God's covenant promise to the house of David. Uh, He says, Hear me, O Jeroboam and all Israel. Ought you not to know that the Lord God of Israel gave the kingdom kingship over Israel forever? Uh, Forever to David and his sons by a covenant of salt? Now you're wondering, what does that covenant of salt mean? Well, we're not exactly sure, but I think we know pretty much. It seems that because salt is a known preservative, the shaking of salt at the time of a covenant was a way of expressing its perpetual nature. That language is actually used in Leviticus 2.13 and Numbers 18. And so a covenant of salt, salt representing perpetuity, uh, is a way of saving what he is saying here, that God's covenant with David was an everlasting covenant. So you've come to march against the kingdom of Judah of the house of David, do you not know what God has said about the house of David? It will never fall. You're going to, you're trying to cause it to fall. It's not going to fall. Why? God has a covenant of salt. It's a vernacular way of saying an unbreakable eternal covenant with the house of David. He proclaims this to them. Now, if you go and read 1 Kings 11, 29 to 40, and the chronicler clearly does expect that we've read Kings, which was an earlier book, we realize that the northern kingdom of Israel, the ten tribes, had in fact been given by God to Jeroboam, but he had done so on a conditional basis. David's kingship is not conditional. It's sovereignly ordained unilaterally by God's covenant promise. Jeroboam's was different. Let me quote briefly from that. The Lord had said, if you, if, if, You will listen to all that I command you and will walk in my ways and do what is right in my eyes by keeping my statutes and my commandments as David my servant did. I will be with you and will build you a sure house. Well, the problem is he never did from the get-go. First thing he does is he builds the golden calves at Dan and Bethel. That leads to a whole stream of idolatries. Jeroboam had forfeited the right that he had to rule the northern tribes. That was... Uh, contingent upon his obedience. Now, his kingship had resulted from the incompetence, you remember, uh, and the folly and pride of Rehoboam, uh, Abijah's father. And it was founded on an act of rebellion against the rightful king. Now, the contrast with the house of David is given verse in verses 6 and 7. Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, a servant of Solomon, the son of David, rose up and rebelled against his Lord. This is how that whole kingdom came about. And, Abijah says, certain worthless scoundrels gathered about him and defied Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, when Rehoboam was young and irresolute and could not withstand them. I'm never offended when a son tries to put a good spin on things affecting his father. And clearly that's in, I think in a sanctified way, that's what's going on here. Uh, he's pleading that Rehoboam had been inexperienced. Rehoboam was 41 
when he acted like a foolish youth. But his son says, you, know, you caught him when he didn't have his act together, and this is what happened, and you had your justification, but it was essentially rebellion. That was, of course, true. Yes, that's a more charitable reading than the one given earlier by the chroniclers, but Abijah is his son. But the main point holds that in contrast to the divine legitimacy of the Davidic house, the northern kingdom was raised in usurpation and now had no legitimacy before the Lord. Well, that same charge can be leveled against every church today that teaches contrary to God's word. The church is not a democracy It's an institution of the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is ruled by none other than Christ himself from his throne in heaven. And so if we ask, well, how does Christ rule his church, though he is at the right hand of God in heaven? The answer is, as his word is preached, believed, and obeyed. Christ reigns in his church through his sovereign word, as it's preached, believed, and obeyed. And so a church can call itself Christian all it wants. But if it defies the teaching of Holy Scripture, it is engaged in a rebellion against Jesus no less severe or onerous than that which Jeroboam had raised against the house of David, from which, by the way, Jesus came. This is why Calvin was right when he cited the faithful preaching and the teaching of God's word as the first of the marks of a true church. Abijah, in verse 11, warns Jeroboam, you have forsaken him. He's talking about the Lord. Your problem is you have forsaken the Lord. By the way, true churches can become false churches, and Jesus talks about that. I will remove your lampstand when his word is not preached, believed, and obeyed. So it is that every so-called church that replaces the teaching of God's word for the doctrines of the men, so often with a worldly strategy of relevance, we want to be more effective, and so we need to take, we need to smooth the edges, don't preach the word straight up, and then don't preach it at all. It ceases to be a true church, every bit as much as the kingdom of Jeroboam became false before the Lord. But that's not all. The evidence for Jeroboam's rebellion amounts as Abijah's not done. He then turns to the topic of the false priests and the false worship of the northern kingdom. Verse 9, have you not driven out the priests of the Lord, the sons of Aaron and the Levites, and made priests for yourself like the priests of other lands? You see, it was God who had set aside the tribe of Levi to serve before him in the tabernacle and the temple. God who established the sacrifices that they were to administer. They were appointed by God for the forgiveness of sin. It was God who had ordained the the offerings of praise in thanks for his grace. Jeroboam, we learn, not surprisingly, he'd order anybody as a priest if he simply paid enough for it. Verse 9, whoever comes for ordination with a young bull or seven rams becomes a priest of what are not gods. That would be tempting, wouldn't it, to think, you know, it's not that big a deal. He made different arrangements for the clerical personnel in his kingdom. Is it that significant? He, He designed his worship to fit more comfortably in the pagan setting that was around him. Surely he'd get more pagans to come in that way. Is it that hard to see? And the answer is yes. 
The reality was that the priests and the divinely ordained sacrifices contained in the Old Covenant the primary witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's the heart of the matter. The the, the very priests themselves and certainly the sacrifices they made were the primary presentation of the gospel. It wasn't just a change of circumstances. It was a wholesale change of religion. Canaanite Baal worship was fundamentally different operated on different principles. It sought a false god instead of the true. You think of the way that the lambs would be have their blood shed in the temple courts. It was a picture of the true lamb who must come, Jesus Christ, and make a sacrifice to the justice of God for the forgiveness of our sins. You think of those wonderful chapters in Leviticus about the sprinkling of blood and how it shows the cleansing of Jesus' blood, First John 1, 7, for the forgiveness of our sins. You think of the day of the atonement, the one day in the year when the high priest would lay his hands upon the scapegoat and it depicted how the Savior, when he came, would take the sins of all his people out of God's sight. And then the high priest would go once a year into the Holy of Holies and he would sprinkle the blood of the other goat who was slain on the, on the mercy seat of the, of the Ark of the Covenant and how Paul takes that same word in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it's the exact word, the hilasterion. It's the propitiation that God fulfilled in the sending of his son, Jesus, to die on the cross for our sins. Now, along those very lines, one of the first heresies a false church will turn to today and all through church history is opposition to the doctrine of Christ's penal substitutionary atonement. That's happened a few years ago, or it was at least reflected a few years ago. The beloved Getty song, In Christ Alone, was going to be put into the Presbyterian Church USA's hymnal until they discovered it had the line, the wrath of God was satisfied. And they went to the Gettys and said, you know, it's a good deal for you if your hymn goes in the hymnal, but we can't worship a God whose wrath is propitiated by the blood of his own son. And to their credit, bless their hearts, they said, then don't put it in your hymnal. But also, it's certainly in our times, it's one of the bigger trends among evangelical churches as they go liberal, as they start attacking the doctrine of Christ's blood. It's been a little shocking in the last 10 or 15 years as evangelical publishing houses, as they Turn from the call of faithfulness. There's been a, an, an InterVarsity, Zondervan, uh, very, uh, Erdman's have once beloved names of Christian publishing have published books attacking the doctrine of the atoning death of the Lord Jesus Christ. This, by the way, is why the reformers emphasize the right administration of the sacraments as a mark of the true church. Because they present in, 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 yes, in ritual form designed by the Lord, the message of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you think of Latimer and Ridley as they were sentenced to burn to death in Oxford during the Marian persecution, you ask, what was the doctrine that they allowed themselves to be burned to death alive for that they would not agree to? It was the doctrine of transubstantiation. 
the Roman Catholic doctrine that when the priest says the words, the Latin words, the elements become the literal body and blood of Jesus Christ. And so it's not faith in the gospel. It's, it's the mechanics ex opere operato by the doing it is done by the bare eating of the elements you receive the benefits of Christ apart from personal faith. And they said no. And, and people go, what's wrong with these people? They allow themselves to be burned to death because they, what's the name of that doctrine again? It's transubstantiation. Whatever it is, it's not worth dying over. Yes, it is. The true church will not abandon Christ in his atoning work as it's emblemized in the, taught in the gospel or emblemized in the sacraments. The false church invests the sacraments with a virtual magical power in place of faith in Christ's saving work and the cross in its sufficiency for the forgiveness of our sins. Now, while Abijah is preaching what scholars have called his Sermon on the Mount, he's on a mount as he's preaching, Jeroboam reveals another feature of the false church, namely that it manifests the world's hatred and persecution of the true church. Now, this has happened throughout church history, certainly the time of the Reformation, the papacy, in conjunction with the, the lords of the, of the medieval kingdoms, they tortured and burned hundreds of Christian leaders. It was their standard policy. Well, you think of the corrupt Orthodox churches behind the Iron Curtain during communist Russia. Not all of them, but the corrupt ones. And they participated in the persecution of the church. We sadly learn today of the government-licensed church, churches that collaborate with the communist Chinese government, even as this very day they are savaging the true church. But that is not something new. Because Jeroboam was not listening to Abijah's godly appeal. Abijah's trying to spare him. He's trying to save the soldiers, trying to save their souls and to save them from the defeat he knows is going to fall upon them. But what, what is Jeroboam doing? Well, he's springing his ambush. That's He's thinking about how to kill them. Look at verse 13. Jeroboam had sent an ambush around to come upon them from behind. Thus his troops were in front of Judah and the ambush was behind them. And the northern army did not even pay attention to Abijah's speech. While the king of Judah was declaring God's will to them, they were sneaking around behind his army. That is another feature of the false church. It abandons the kingship, the true kingship expressed in God's word. It forsakes the gospel that was shown in the sacrifices and the priests. And then it expresses hatred for the true church. But there's one final description this passage gives of the false church, namely that it fails to destroy the gospel for all of the overwhelming power of its sociological um, uses it's all it's it's today it's advertising and the use of marketing and government appeals back then it was the sword it fails it can arrange peril for the true church but it simply can't destroy it and why is that well abijah tells them in verse 12 behold god is with us at our head this is the the way Luther and the taught in the days of the Reformation. They were right. God is with us at our head and his priests with their battle trumpets to sound the call to battle against you. You see, when we pray, God is actually going to answer. It's going to be a bit of a problem for the false church and the worldly kings. He appeals, O sons of Israel, do not fight against the Lord, the God of your fathers, for you cannot succeed. 
Now, the, the false church had all, had all the worldly resources. They got the numbers. Usually in the Bible, they have the better technology too. Uh, apparently not on this occasion, but they usually do. Today, again, it's all the power of sociology used to harness public opinion. But Abijah warned them, Now you think to withstand the kingdom of the Lord in the hands of the son of David, because you are a great multitude, and have with you the gods of the golden calves that Jeroboam made you for gods. He wants to spare them, because they're going to be defeated by the God who protects his church. Well, this encounter between Abijah and Jeroboam displays the character of the false church, but then we also see in the words and actions of Judah's king Abijah, who's the great-grandson of David, we see here also a picture of the true church. And here's the question. Do we wish to be accounted as true believers gathered into a true church? I know we're imperfect, but do we want the marks of faithfulness upon us? Well, then, like the army of Judah... Standing in battle against the northern usurpers, we must march under the banner of King Jesus. It's simply not enough to have the word Christian in the name of our church or our Christian school or our whatever it is. Simply using the word Christian does not mean we are marching under the banner of King Jesus. Now again, Christ reigns in and for his church as we are committed to his word. We may actually have, I don't really mind that much when fellow Christians have a difference in doctrine. Oh, I care about it. So long as they're really trying to be committed to God's word and they're doing their best and they're being faithful and sincere. And I can see that they want his word to be law. That's more important, frankly, than that we get all the, 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 the important but secondary issues right. That their decisions, their actions are based of a desire to put into practice the word of God. Now you'll see this in Article 29 of the Belgic Confession, another beloved Reformation doctrine, where it makes the rule of Christ through his work the primary mark of the true church. The true church can be recognized as it has the following marks. The church engages in the pure preaching of the gospel. It makes use of the proper pure administration of the sacraments as Christ has instituted them, where? In his word. It practices church discipline for correcting and fault. It's false. In short, it governs itself according to the pure word of God, rejecting all things contrary to Scripture and holding Jesus Christ as the only head. By these marks, one can be assured of recognizing the true church and no one ought to be separated from it. Well, along with this commitment to the word of God, the true church loves to worship the Lord and to do so in accordance with Scripture. Look at verses 10 to 11, where Abijah exclaims his delight in the sacred ordinances committed to the Levites in the Old Covenant. But as for us, the Lord is our God, and we have not forsaken him. We have priests ministering to the Lord who are sons of Aaron and Levites for their service. They offer to the Lord every morning and every evening burnt offerings and incense of sweet spices. They set out the showbread on the table of pure gold. They care for the golden lampstand that its lamps may burn every evening. For we keep charge of the Lord our God. I love his enthusiasm. We might read that and go, is it that big a deal? He goes, it's wonderful. Why? Because it's worship as God has ordained it in keeping with the gospel under this covenant. Then it was the old covenant. What a wonder. See, the true church delights in biblical worship. 
like Abijah's Judah, the true church under the new covenant loves to celebrate these very things as they have matured, as they've come to fruition in the coming of the Lord Jesus. We love to hear Christ-centered sermons that exalt our Savior and his redemptive sufficiency. We love to pray together in the church. That fulfills the altar of incense. That's the prayers of the saints. Oh, we can't wait for the congregational prayer. We're going to pray together, led by an elder, and God's going to hear us. We love to eat from the hand of God as he feeds us from his word and also from the Lord's table. We rejoice as the true light shines in our hearts from Christ as he is set before us. Andrew Stewart writes, God is still jealous to prevent true worship from being replaced by man-made innovations to make it more attractive to worldly people. God still regards worship as one of the primary purposes of his church. And believers in Jesus are delighted to gather for worship each Lord's day, and we do not regard it as a distraction from supposedly more relevant activities. Presenting ourselves in faith before the Lord of glory and grace, we want to fulfill those words of Hebrews twelve twenty-eight and 29. Let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Now, notice further that just as Abijah marked out his army to protect, he marched them out to protect against the incursion of Jeroboam, so also the true church will stand firm in opposition to worldly assault. It will not go along when the government demands that it do things and say things that are contrary to God's word. We say, well, no, thank you very much. We actually serve a a king who's higher than you. Well, we're the Supreme Court of the United States. Very impressive. But Jesus is King of kings and lords of lords. We have to obey him. This is the mark of the... And this one, the rubber meets the road. Here the true church will stand. But let me notice as well. We must stand against the demands of an ungodly culture. But notice as well that Abijah's message was aimed not merely in militant opposition but it was primarily delivered with mercy in gospel appeal. Here's the true church. It preaches the gospel of peace to those who wield the sword against it. Isn't it? This is why I think that a better interpretation of Abijah is more than warranted. He's preaching peace to them in the name of Christ who will come from the house of David and fulfill everything the priests and their worship represented. You cannot succeed, he appeals to them. Christ likewise commissioned his true followers, not as an army for worldly warfare. Paul says the weapons that we wield are not those of the world. No, he sends us forth in gospel witness to the world. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Matthew twenty-eight eighteen to 20. It's the mission statement of every true church. And yes, even to the world, as it hates and oppresses believers, our message primarily is that of reconciliation to God through faith in the blood of Christ. And so we cry out today, like Abijah on Mount Zemariah, wherever it is, we can't find it. And with the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 5, 20 to 21, 
He wrote, we are ambassadors for Christ. God is making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's the heart of our appeal. Yes, even to the false church, even to the world it's allied with, we implore you to be reconciled to God through the atoning work of his Son. Well, Second Chronicles 13 shows that through the power of God, the true church prevails against all worldly opposition in order to continue bearing its testimony to saving truth. As Luther celebrated in his Reformation hymn, a mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing, our helper he amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. Now, this is not to deny that Abijah and his men were rather startled when the ambush was sprung against them. Verses 13 and 14, Jeroboam had sent an ambush around to come upon them from behind. Thus his troops were in front of Judah, and the ambush was behind them. And when Judah looked, behold, the battle was in front and and behind them. Now again, their response is consistent with the faith and knowledge of God that marks the true church. They began praying. The true church responds primarily our chief resource, not the last resort, but our chief resource is prayer because there is a God who hears. That's what they did. And they cried to the Lord, verse 14. Moreover, the priests blew the trumpets. It was a seal of their faith that they'd nurtured in true worship. It was a battle cry. They, they cried to the Lord in faith, and then they expressed their faith as they took action. It was like Gideon, the chronicler saying, it's holy warfare when this happens. It's like Gideon when the trumpets were blown and the torches were brought out, and they, they acted trusting God to give them victory. And so he did. Look at verses 15 and 17. Because here's another truth about the true church. God protects her so that she prevails against her enemies. Then the men of Judah raised the battle shout. And when the men of Judah shouted, God God defeated Jeroboam and all Israel before Abijah and Judah. The men of Israel fled before Judah and God gave them into their hand. Abijah and his people struck them with great force. So there was slain of Israel 500,000 chosen men. Now here we see the combination of true faith and divine power by which the true church is delivered from every worldly attack. Christians can be injured. Christians can be hurt. I'm sure there were more than a few casualties on the side of Judah. But the church that is guarded by Christ cannot be overthrown. I will build my church, Jesus said, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against her. Well, as faithful Christians today are increasingly confronted by menacing powers, I think we primarily think of government bodies, but so often it's also the false church. We will be delivered the same way Abijah and Judah were enabled to prevail against Jeroboam. And here's a great statement of verse 18. The men of Judah prevailed because they relied on the Lord, the God of their fathers, 
They trusted to him in a real way. And that manifested themselves. They did not appeal to other non-Lord sources of strength. They trusted God and his word. They relied. They made the statement, if the Lord does not save us, it's like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. God will not will deliver us. But if he doesn't, we're going to trust him anyway. Andrew Hill, I think, rightly comments the significance of that phrase, God of their father should not be lost. You see, God has been in this situation before. He has a rather clear track record. They could look back to the Red Sea. What, let's rely on the Lord. He parted the Red Sea. They could think of Gideon and Deborah, many other occasions. They could think of the exploits of David and Solomon. By the way, this is the value of church history. Missionary biographies, because these are real stories. And we find that the God of the God of where now is the God of Elijah? He's with us. The God of Abijah, where is he? He's with his church today all around the world. But of course, for us, the greatest proof is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I love how 1 Corinthians 15, 25 and 26 reflects on the fact that Christ has conquered even death. It says, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet, even the last enemy, which is death. Yes, we see all the great biblical examples where the God of our fathers defended. He he rescued his church. Church history is filled with them. The Reformation, which we celebrate, is filled with examples. But the resurrection of Jesus is our great proof. Even the grave had no hold over him who is our Savior. Well, let me conclude by saying, my friends, if it was futile for the soldiers of Israel under Jeroboam to fight against God, how much more futile it will be for you to maintain rebellion against the same God, especially as he offers you salvation through his son, the Lord Jesus. And you may say, I'm not in rebellion against God. I'm just living my own life according to my own terms. That is the mantra of rebellion to God. That is the very nature of rebellion of God because it is not your own life. There is a creator. He's the sovereign Lord. He has the rights over all his creatures. And he is the God of mercy and grace who sent his son to die on the cross for sin and who offers you salvation. It is a a rebellion compassion with contempt for the blood of Jesus Christ. How will you stand in such a state if this is what happened to Jeroboam? And we see that he never recovers from the defeat he suffers here. We're told 500,000 of his 800,000 were slain. By the way, I love it when scholars say that's totally unrealistic. No, actually, the ancient world, world, I used to study military history quite a lot. Back then, when the armies were very close, there was nowhere to grow when your side lost. So the Roman army, when they lost to Hannibal at the Battle of Cannae in 206 BC, had 70,000 out of 76,000 slain on the field. This was normal for losing a hand-to-hand combat battle in the ancient world. And Jeroboam never recovers. Abijah pursues him. He starts, we're told at the end, he captures cities. And then we're told in verse 20, the Lord struck Jeroboam down and he died. Well, look, we're all going to die, but it's only those who are being judged for the rebellion against God through Jesus Christ who are struck down in death, never to rise again, except for the resurrection of condemnation in the final judgment. 
Oh, believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. It's the only way to be saved. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Meanwhile, Abijah grew mighty. We, we see this in his, no doubt, military economic strength. But again, it's primarily in wives, sons, and daughters. He, he's securing his kingship for the generation to come. Well, I think Psalm 2, almost certainly written many years before these events took place, gives us the best concluding commentary on the victory of the true church under Abijah as king over Jeroboam and the false church. And Psalm 2 begins with a question. It's a question for today. Why do the nations rage? Why do the peoples plot in vain? It goes on to say that God has established his son on his holy hill. He is the king of kings. He will reign forever. And that includes in the final judgment of rebel sinners on the last day. Psalm 2 verse 9 says to Jesus, you shall break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Well, Jesus surely, just as surely as the house of David was established, just as surely as the true church today is founded on his gospel word, so it is just as sure that salvation comes only through faith in this Jesus Christ. And so it's with words of wisdom and life, declaring the victory of Christ for his kingdom and his church, that we read the final lines of Psalm 2. They're words for us. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. But blessed are all who take refuge in him. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the way the Bible fits together. We look back and it's telling us about ourselves and, and the way you have organized your church and the way the world and unbelief and the false church opposes it. And Father, cause us to act like the true church and be the true church by the power of your spirit. May Christ reign here at the corner of River and Rat, but also at every address where our families are and our people are. Let him reign through his word, through the gospel of peace and the, the grace that he gives. May the gospel be our treasure. May we be that worshiping church that delights to worship according to your word, that you would be pleased and we would be built up. And yes, Lord, save us, we pray. In fact, we would pray with that same church in the Bible. Come, Lord Jesus, we pray. Oh, come. We ask this in his name. Amen.